going to forego the usual scripture reading this morning because really the first part of this message today is the scripture reading. Uh, I'm going to read through it and, and just provide some comments along the way with things I want you to notice and maybe enlighten you about along the way. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, much of the, the inspiration for the direction of, of, of this reading of the text comes from a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. He had a TED talk uh, called The Untold Story of David and Goliath and later published a book called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Really cool. Uh, and there are things to address here in this passage regarding myths of redemptive violence, the ways of David versus the ways of Jesus, and which of those things we should choose as followers of Jesus. But that's not really what this message is about today. Even so, it's not just a children's story, okay? I believe there is a word in here for us today, both individually and corporately. So. Let's jump in. We're in 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 1, reading from the NRSV. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkot in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Sukkot and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span, so basically Dean. He had a bronze helmet and his head and on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs were bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a lot of shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Interesting little tidbit, in case you're not aware. The word Philistines, Philistine, eventually became what we call Palestine. To give you an indication as to how old this conflict really is. The champion, Goliath, it's an interesting pair of words here. In the Hebrew, it is ish haba, habanim, ish habanim. It's literally ish, a man, habanim, the space between two armies. The man between, ish habanim. This is a form of ancient warfare, right? You've seen this in movies, I'm sure, where there are two huge armies, and if they engage, it's going to be a massive loss of life on both sides, right? It's going to be a bloodbath. Or we can settle this mano a mano. You send out your best, we'll send out ours. They'll duke it out. Whoever dies, loses. Yeah? So Goliath, the champion, the man between, he's six foot nine, and he's fully outfitted. He is very heavy infantry. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? 
Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So the battle lines here have been drawn. You've got one army on a hill, and you've got another army that's spanning from Sukkot to uh, Azekah, like in a horseshoe shape, all around them. Okay? Israel is greatly outnumbered, both in terms of people, manpower, and geography. And they're at a standstill, because there's a valley between them. Anyone who initiates this contact, if you've seen Star Wars, I have the high ground, Anakin. You can't beat me. Yeah? If you take the low ground, you're dead. So they're at a standstill here for 40 days. 40 days. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second was Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Morning and evening. This is a reference to the holiest times for these people. These times of prayer and sacrifice, of offering. And he would come out when they were doing their sacrifices, their offerings, and taunt them. Yeah? Smack talk. You know? For 40 days. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So David is still back home with dad, with Jesse. Dad sends him to the battlefront to take some bread and cheese and what? To bring back a report. Jesse is afraid. He fears the worst. And sends a child to the battlefront. David. Yeah? That's some great fathering. So David, who is effectively a water boy at this point, taking some bread and cheese, or bread and cheese boy, I guess, uh, to see what's going on. Yeah? Verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. Verse 23, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage, more great fathering, and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Whew. 
So Saul and his army have been here for 40 days. What does that remind you of? Huh? Wilderness. Wilderness, yeah. We've got Israel traveling through the desert wilderness for 40 years. Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. 40 in biblical numerology is a number that represents testing. Testing. The author, the author here is he's making the point that Saul has been put to the test. Okay, 40 days. Saul has been put to the test. They've had an opportunity to show God what is in their hearts. And in Saul's heart is what? Fear. Israel has gone back and forth with the Philistines for a very long time. And it has culminated in this moment, staring each other down across a valley from two hills. Saul and his army are staring down what is potentially the very end of the Israelite experiment. They are greatly outnumbered, and in this most strategic geographic point in their land, in their kingdom, and in their hearts and minds, they have lost. It is over. Israel is over. The story of God is over. Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Saul and his army are quaking in fear. And young David shows up and is like, wait, he insulted God? Who does this uncircumcised Philistine think he is? I could say more. I won't because the youth are with us today. <laughs> they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and said, why have you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done? Says David. Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else. Forget you, bro. And brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, the king. And Saul sent for him. <laughs> David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Y'all, David's like 12. My son is 11. It's like sending my son to go fight half Thor Bjornsson. If you know who I'm talking about. Strongest man in the world. Yeah? What? Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Ooh, ooh, I don't know what you've been doing as Israel's shepherd, Saul, but I've been taking care of my sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has both killed the lion and the bear. The uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. 
The Lord has rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear and will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. (laughs) But David, he was willing. Yeah. Saul has had 40 days to do something and David is there for a few hours. He's like, I'm in. Put me in coach. Saul is afraid. David is willing. Yeah. And can we just pause here to let the reality of what we just read sink in? David is a child. A child. That's why he's still at home with dad, still tending the sheep. Saul's attempt to dissuade this child from going down is feeble at best, right? It doesn't take much coaxing for Saul to be like, yeah, okay, you go. I don't know about y'all, but I'm not letting this child go face that giant champion, no matter how tough he thinks he is. Look, man, no, you're not going. I don't care. You're crazy. But Saul is so utterly desperate. He's terrified. He's so scared that he sent a child to fight his battle. Because this is Saul's battle. And then this, then Saul dressed David, verse 38, in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. Verse 39, David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. As though he is attempting to diminish his guilt and shame in this moment, Saul is like, here, take my armor, take my weapons. And David's like, bruh, I can't even walk. (laughs) Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. Remember that from last week? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. But by the way, David was pretty good looking. Remember that? We can't get away from that. It's weird. Uh, So, and why is Goliath noticing David's handsomeness? He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? David only had one stick, but he saw two. That's an interesting tidbit. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give you your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you and give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. There, in his most vulnerable spot, the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. (laughs) So we've got Goliath, this 
very heavy infantry and David, the shepherd boy with a sling and a bag of rocks. Yeah? But this sling isn't like just any sling. It's not a slingshot, right? It's not a children's toy. It's actually a very deadly weapon. The sling would have been like a, like a leather pouch type thing, right? With a couple of long strings on the end and they would put the projectile like the rock or a lead pellet or something like that in the base of that pouch and sling it overhead. Six to seven revolutions per second, yeah? The tribe of Benjamin had an elite group of slingers, they were called. That's Saul's tribe, by the way. Remember, this was Saul's fight. They were like special forces. These slingers could hit something with deadly accuracy 200 yards out. That's two football fields. That's a long way. (laughs) They could knock birds out of the air from great distances. I can't imagine. I can't even hit a basketball hoop. (laughs) Some folks have done the math on these slings and have calculated that the stopping power of one of these projectiles is equivalent to about a 45 caliber handgun. Talk about a wallop. Probably hard enough to go through your forehead, yeah? Again, this is not a toy but a very deadly weapon. So here's what I want you to see in this story. The story of David versus Goliath is often portrayed as the quintessential underdog tale. Yeah? And we Americans, we love a good underdog story, right? But that's not what this is. It's not just facing the giants, an unlikely tale of the small defeating the big. The weak defeating the strong. No, that's not what's happening here. This was only a mismatch in Goliath's favor if David and Goliath were to fight the way that everyone expected, like all the other nations, like everyone else. Saul even attempts to outfit David in his own armor. This was the expectation. This was the norm. This was what we do. But if you forego the conventional means. If you don't fight according to everyone else's expectations, this battle is obviously very much in David's favor. How do we know? He won in 10 seconds, right? David opted not to fight by conventional means like everyone else, like he was expected to. I can't walk in this, man. And instead, he chose to utilize the unique ways that God had equipped him and called him and gifted him. There is an element of faith here for David to storm down the side of that hill. Sure, but there's also an element of just being smart, right? Playing to his strengths. So, for you. What are your gifts? What is your battle of F.S. Damim? What are the battles you are facing in your life right now? What stone do you have to throw? What are the unique ways that God has gifted and equipped you 
to do the work he's put before you? Will you face your battles with conventional means, like everyone expects, like everyone else? Or is there another way, a way that you are uniquely gifted and called and equipped? David could only win by being David. He could not win by being Saul. He could not win by being Goliath. He cannot be something he's not and walk away in victory. What is perceived to be his greatest weakness, that he is just a shepherd boy, turns out to be his greatest strength. This story is not about the underdog overcoming adversity. It's about being faithful. It's about being smart. It's about knowing your God and knowing yourself. What if we stopped trying to be so-and-so down the street? What if we stopped striving to be something we aren't? What if we could quit trying to mimic what we see on Facebook or Instagram and instead focused on being faithful and smart? I want to ask those same questions again. But this time, I want to ask them about church, about our church specifically. For a long time, years really, but especially so in the last six months, I have been burdened with finding a way forward, a plan. I'm getting a lot of feedback, are y'all? Can we figure that out real quick? I need to back up. A plan. I've said before that I'm not terribly interested in the typical church metrics of success, bodies, buildings, and budgets. I have no aspirations of having the biggest or best church around, whatever that even means. What I am interested in is unity and peace. I have a massive interest in trying to learn, figure out what it means to be faithful to Jesus in our time and space, our context, and then doing that thing. I have an interest in people who journey together into the heart of God, who center the entirety of their lives on the person and work of Jesus Christ. As I've said in the past, I'm not anti-big. I'm not pro-small. What I am is anti-burnout. What I am is pro-healthy, pro-sustainable, pro-being and making disciples. And I believe the Lord gave me some pretty strong hints at what this way forward may look like. But more importantly, what this way forward would require of me and of us. And to be frank, it scared the crap out of me. Not because of the thing itself, but because my personal wounds, as someone who feels he has been perpetually misunderstood for the entirety of my life, my wounds tend to revolve around things like abandonment and rejection. And this thing would almost certainly be met with both of those in my mind, and so I kept it to myself. Please forgive me for that. All the while it was burning within me. It, it eventually came to the point where I fell into a pretty heavily depressive state. 
As an aside, I was diagnosed with depression several years ago, and uh, through taking care of my body, you know, eating, changing my diet, training, I lost a lot of weight. You guys probably remember that. Uh, and finally pursuing hormone replacement therapy to get myself all in balance. My depressive days were mostly behind me. I would have occasional kind of breakthrough depressive days, uh, but for the most part, they were gone. And just again, as an aside, if that's something that you experience, you should never be ashamed or afraid to pursue help on that front, whether that's through counseling or medical intervention or both. Those are real things. But this time, this breakthrough depressive episode was really, really rough. It lasted for about six weeks. Six weeks of really feeling like I was constantly on the verge of a panic attack. Six weeks of frequently crying myself to sleep. I was hiding this word from the Lord within me and it was hurting. I was fixated on it, but I couldn't let it go and I couldn't get it out. Eventually, through a series of conversations with trusted friends and mentors, I came to a place where I was genuinely okay. I was okay. I was, I was no longer fixated on the thing. I was good either way it went. Either we would choose to do this new thing or we wouldn't. I was fine. Or so I thought anyway. Two days later, so that was May 28th, Friday, May 28th, whenever I kind of came out of that depressive episode. Friday, May 28th. Two days later, on May 30th, my birthday, Nathan Otten's parents were visiting us from uh, Wisconsin, yes? Uh, his mom pulls me aside after the service and says, I received a word from the Lord for you on Friday, two days ago, while we were driving down here from Wisconsin. Are you open to that? And I said, absolutely, lay it on me. Uh, I've never met or spoken to this woman in my life. She doesn't know me or anything about me or really even this church for that matter. And what followed was what I think was the most pointed and direct and timely word I've ever received. Here's what she said. The pastor has been praying about and wrestling with something for a while. Yup. He is not sure whether he should do it or when he should do it, as it will involve both him and the church. Ultimately, it is a plan or a way forward for the future of the church. But the pastor has to lead the way as the congregation will not do it, will not do what the pastor doesn't first lead into by example. Tell him, yes, in all caps, he should do it. And the time is now, in all caps. I had been waiting for some kind of sign, like this was the way forward, and the Lord had already shown me the way, but I didn't want it. <laughs> I thought I did, and then I didn't, and I kept it to myself. In addition to this word, I began to go back in this time, well, no, two days after that, I had got a phone call that was like another layer of 
it felt like God was screaming at me at this point. Listen to me. But I, I took that word and I took, uh, I took in all of the words that we had received for Grace Church from Pastor Wayne over the past few years and I just laid them all out on the table and I read them just from one end to the other. And some of the things Pastor Wayne said, the timely thing you need to hear today is that you matter to your neighbors beyond these walls and you matter to your city. It's a season to allow the Lord to reset your hearts and focus your service towards your neighbors and your city. It's time for this church to go beyond these walls, to be a blessing to this city. And as you go, make disciples. As you embrace your commission with the Holy Spirit, you will become a congregation of significant consequence for those who are out beyond the walls of this building. Favor is waiting for you in the neighborhoods, in local government, and especially in the schools. Ask the Lord to show you what he wants for your neighbors and for this city, and he will. Grace Church should matter to Alma because Alma matters to the Lord. I see shifts in roles and responsibilities. I see new alignments of relationships. I see realignments of priorities coming, not just from hearing about the needs, but from hearing the voice. I believe the Lord is positioning you for new assignments by the Holy Spirit has for you that will open opportunities to bless and have a significant impact in this city. I had a picture of Gulliver tied up in an abandoned temple outside the walls of the city. I believe it is a picture of the church in our area. By offering acceptance based on your agreement, a spirit of religion would try to bind you with tiny ropes. But you mustn't let it happen. You are called to non-religious Christianity. Within a sometimes harsh Bible Belt religiosity, you are not a people of religion. You are a covenant people of relationship. Relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Religion lulls us into playing it safe by worrying too much about our reputation and man's acceptance. Our reputation is in Jesus who made, Jesus, who made himself of no reputation by becoming a, a servant. Religion keeps us bound up in our man-made temples, living under the man-made rules. Grace Church was not meant to be tamed or bound by tiny ropes of religion. You are here to give people of this area the encounter with God they deserve. You are here to break ropes of bondage and speak freedom to captives every day, everywhere, all the time. You aren't to be in a temple. You, you are not to be in a temple outside the walls of the city. The city needs you to be who you really are, freedom fighters, rope breakers, and city changers. Grace Church, can you receive that? You have had a time to honor what's gone before, and you have done that well. I sense a time to embrace forward movement now. As the culture opens back up from the pandemic, as they look for something to hold on to, let them find you where they are. Put out a new welcome mat as people may give the church another look and come where they feel welcomed. But at the same time, put on your gospel shoes and walk among the people of this city. Many will better identify with what you are doing among them rather than what they can't see inside the walls of the church. Most people live their lives out beyond the church walls. Go walk among them. Serve in practical ways and do acts of kindness. Make Alma better because you are here. Point them to Jesus, and he will point them toward you. It is time to receive grace, faith, and grit's resolve to cross your Jordan River into the land of promise there waiting for you. As I read through these, that was actually like three or four different words that I strung together. As I read these things, maybe you can see it too, but I, I was noticing a pattern emerging. I wholeheartedly believe that this campus was a gift from God. But I believe the Lord is leading us to part ways with it to initiate this next season, this next chapter of our with God-shaped life of faith.
And so I finally mustered the courage to gather our elder team a couple of weeks ago and share with them everything that was on my heart and mind, much like I have with you here this morning. And the question was posed, do we sell this building? Not for financial reasons, that's not, that's not it, but to be who we are. I didn't want an answer then, I wanted them to take it home and pray it through and we would return and share with each other about what we had been sensing and hearing and receiving. And a week later we came back and we prayed some more and talked and ultimately the question was put to a vote and our elder team stands in agreement that this is the Lord's leading and we are choosing to take a step forward to what he has for us to do. The battles he has for us that we are uniquely gifted and equipped to take on. Grace Church is to be a church for Alma. A church that exists beyond these walls, perhaps even without walls. So much of the modern expression of church in America is focused on building something big so that others may see and come. But I don't think that's what God has called us to in this season. To be clear, I don't intend to speak negatively of churches who take this approach. It's just that I don't believe that's what God has for us. Even so, so much of the modern expression of church in America has become focused on the organization, the institution, churches that exist for the sake of their own existence. And I believe it has bred an unintended consequence of teaching people that church is that spiritual thing that we go do, and then there's the rest of our lives. It's just an item on our to-do list rather than a way of life. But to have faith in Jesus is to follow Jesus. Faith in Jesus is to be embodied. It is to be lived, not just checked off. To be his apprentices in life is to take him seriously in all we do. Not just Sunday morning, but in how we marry, how we parent, how we work, lead, govern, befriend, serve how we live the other 167 hours in a week. And so like the questions I asked earlier from David's story for your own, we can ask those same questions of church, of our church. What if we stop trying to be the mega church down the street? What if we stop trying to put on the show we see others trying to do? What if we stop trying to mimic what we see on Facebook and Instagram? What if we stop trying to replicate things, stop trying to do the next big thing that's going to fulfill the standard metrics of bodies, buildings, and budgets? And instead, what if we just focus on being faithful and smart with what God has given us, how God has equipped us, and we let God work through us the way we are? I don't yet know exactly what this will look like. But I do believe that we will have the resources to make it happen. And I believe it will be beautiful. And I believe that because it's not going to come from just me. It's going to come from you too. The primary question that I want to dominate our consciousness as a church is what does it mean what does it look like for us as individuals, 
as families, as a church, to live truly Jesus-centered lives. So, we are going to sell this campus. And I am I'm so excited about it. But I'm also kind of sad. I and Pastor Devin, Pastor Larry, and a, a number of you have poured so many hours into this space. But what if we were given this space to fund the next thing? Because if this sells for what we think it'll sell for, what it's worth, then we will walk away from this campus with about a million dollars in our pockets, in our bank account, rather. In 2013, when I was tasked with managing the finances of the River Fellowship, what we were before we were Grace Church, on paper we had about negative $10,000 to our name. By the end of that year, we had $15,000 in the bank. And here we are eight years later and we've got a million. Wow, God is good. Not that the abundance is evidence of his favor and blessing, but it's right there. And like Jason talked about this morning, we're going to begin to ask ourselves, how do we use this? How do we use the ways that God has uniquely gifted and equipped us? How do we use the resources he has given us to really be a blessing to this place? What can we do? Those are the questions I want you to explore together, separately. And as we move forward, all of your voices matter. We are small. There's not many of us here. There are more who are a part of this thing that we're doing right now who, who aren't here this morning for one reason or another, but really, if you look around, this is, this is pretty much it, fam. But I like it that way, because I know you're in. And that means the world to me and our team. And I will always be there for you. Uh, I know I'm ending on kind of a somber note, and I think that's appropriate, though. If you feel that sense of loss in this, I want you to know that's okay. It's understandable. But I don't think this is loss. This is a new chapter, maybe even a new book of what God is leading us into as a church. Amen? If y'all would bow your heads and just lock arms, touch shoulders, I don't care. I'm going to pray for us. And again, after this, if you, if you want to stick around and have questions, you're welcome. Father, thank you for the ways that you have uniquely called, gifted, and equipped us. Help us to learn more about these ways as we seek to be faithful to you in fighting our battles. Help my friends to see what they and others may perceive as weakness may be their greatest strength. Help us to see what it looks like to live a truly Jesus-centered life in our time and place. And Lord, as a church, we who remain, we who are willing, and we who will come, we are stepping out once again in an act of faith and confess this experiment will utterly fail if you are not with us. We cannot do this on our own. Father, I am overwhelmed by your grace in this season. 
I ask you to raise up gifts of faith in myself and in my friends. I ask that we could each take ownership of this movement, that we would know each of our voices are not only welcome but needed. I ask for creativity to arise, not just in the arts but in the way we operate, how we serve. And Lord, I ask for the grit and the grace to carry this story forward into the unknown, into the very heart of God. In Jesus' name, amen.